Here we go. Now, uh, I just want to give you a heads up. Most of you, particularly the members, will know about this anyway. But in two short weeks, we're going to have our next opportunity to give loads of cash into our building fund. Can I have a woo? Thank you so much. Who was that? That was extraordinary. That was a big woo. Thank you. Who was that? Thank you, Rob. Of course, Rob. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, if you don't know, we as a church are absolutely positive. God is calling us to uh, start building an ark, as it were, metaphorically, for the rain is coming. And we are believing that in the days ahead, we are going to need a building absolutely as we grow, outgrow this place. We've got a lot of prophecies over us as a church by the grace of God, such as that God's calling us to be a church of a thousand so that we can change this city and the very fabric of the society in which we change, uh, in which we exist rather. And also we're believing for multiple sites. That's another key prophetic words that come. So we very practically need to start seeking God again and again and, and putting money aside so that when the day comes, when actually God very clearly says here and perhaps and here and here and here and wherever God's going to call us to actually build, we want to be ready. Amen? Amen. So actually in two weeks' time is going to be our first opportunity to give in a while. I just want to encourage you. God's promise is that we cannot outgive him. We can't do it. So no matter, no matter how much we think we're giving, whether it's two pounds or whether it's 200,000 pounds perhaps, however much you know God is, I want you to do it in faith, okay? Paul always says, I don't, con- I don't, I don't command you to give. I, I, I encourage you to give. And we're called to be cheerful givers. So can I encourage you, if you haven't done it already, for, to, just to seek God in the next couple of weeks so that in two weeks' time when we come, we come full of faith, full of joy, that actually as we give supernaturally in the spiritual realm, God always loves to pour out blessing upon those who are generous givers. Okay, well, as uh, John's already said, uh, today we're going to be launching into a brand new series. We've just finished uh, a couple of weeks ago our latest series, which was uh, a quick whistle-stop tour of the Psalms. But today, we're going to be looking at that mighty, mighty book known as Genesis. Can you see the slide behind me? Isn't it cool? Can we just thank Tom Gillett, who's doing the sound today? If you don't know Tom, Tom does just about everything at the moment. Bless him, he's just the most sort of stretched man in the world. He loves it, don't you, Tom? He does, amen. But he, uh, he spent quite a while looking for this particular dramatic photo to try and summarize something of Genesis. It's quite difficult to summarize Genesis, actually, because it's an absolutely huge book. It is 50 chapters. It's an absolute big mama of a book. And so, quite obviously, we are not attempting to go from chapters 1 to 50 in one go. Because if we did, we'd probably, you'd probably leave the church, because we'd be here for quite a while. So you'd be pleased to know we're going to do Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and then we're going to do something else, which we're seeking the Lord over at the moment. We've got a few ideas. Keep you posted on that one. And then we'll come back to 12 to 50 later on in 2008. Does that sound exciting? Yes, good. So today, I'm going to just do what we often do before we jump into a book, which Andy Chevalier next week has got the joy of looking at Genesis chapter 1, the absolute quagmire of different uh, views and opinions. Today, uh, I'm just going to kind of cause us to step back before we step forwards into the actual text itself. So today is really an introduction. We did an introduction to the letter of James a few months ago, and I felt it'd be helpful for us to spend a few minutes this morning just, as it were, getting on the same page, as it were, metaphorically, so that when we get into God's page, we actually are, we're going to get the most out of it. And uh, the word Genesis very literally means origins or beginnings. And it's a very appropriate word and title for the book that we're about to look at, because actually Genesis 
tells us the origins of just about everything that we've probably ever thought about. We find in Genesis, it tells us the origins of, of life itself, of the universe, of the sun and the moon and the stars. It's going to tell us about the origins of family life and gender and sex. It's going to tell us about the origins of government and culture. It's going to tell us the origins about sin, about sin and about murder and about wars. So believe me, we are in for a treat in the next few, in the next few months. Are you excited? Yeah, it's an incredible book. And it's all about the origins or the beginnings of how this entire world came to be. It's absolutely incredible. Many scholars call it, in fact, the prologue to the rest of the Bible. And what they mean by that is if Genesis 1 to 11 didn't exist, we would have no foundation on which to base the entire rest of the Bible. It's that important. But there's something else I want to say before we jump into this. And this is, I felt very strongly about this. It's very interesting that perhaps the two books of the entire Bible that have most suffered ridicule and attack from the world in which we live are Genesis and Revelation. And it's interesting to note that whilst Genesis deals at one part with the entrance of the enemy, that is Satan, Revelation exposes and reveals the undignified exit and end to our enemy, that is Satan. And isn't it interesting that it's particularly those books that probably you found when you try and talk to people, non-Christians often, or if you're a non-Christian here today, you might have thought those two are like the wacky books. Those are the books that are a bit weird, you know, can we really trust them? And it's so interesting and it's important for us as a church that we realise, although at one level, at an earthly level, we're going to be looking at pages in a book, using our eyes and using our senses, at another unseen, invisible level, there is a spiritual battle we're about to start. We are actually doing warfare, as it were, the Bible says. Particularly as we look at this book that lays the foundation for everything else. So I'm looking forward to the next few months. I hope you are too. And the two questions I want us to look at briefly this morning that we, uh, that we looked at when we looked at the book of James are number one, the purpose. What did the original writer have in mind? What was his purpose when he wrote the book that he did? And number two... Who was the person who actually wrote it? And I would say to you that if there's at least two questions that you always ask yourself whenever we come to any piece of scripture, at least always ask yourself, number one, what is the original purpose of why this was written? And number two, who was it who wrote this book? They're like tools that if you really get hold of, it means that when you come to scripture, you find you get so much more out of it. So I'm just going to pray and then we'll just jump straight in. Lord, we love you. Lord, your presence is so precious to us. And even now, we just say, Lord God, Lord, we say, Lord, would you come in mighty power this morning? Lord, as an army, we say, Lord God, we want to look at these maker's instructions. Lord, with faith, with faith in Jesus. Jesus, would you come and would you guide us, your bride today, your church? Lord, we just come today and we are eager to learn both in our minds, but also in our hearts. Come now by the power of God in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. I want to say something this morning. We're going to have to do this together. I really mean this. I have a strong sense this morning, the enemy doesn't want us to hear what I'm about to say. Okay, I'm not saying to freak you out. I'm just saying, as I came in, I thought, there we go. So you're going to have to be active with me, okay? Because as we become active, I'm going to preach, but you're going to preach with me, all right? And you may think, oh, blimey, here we go. I mean it. There's something that gets unlocked 
We're going to do some battle today because the truth we're going to look at today, you might think, oh, Tom, we know this. This is the basics. Come on. This is foundational. And I believe that in the unseen realm, even as we do this and as we stir faith in ourselves, actually God's going to unlock things. Are you in faith for that? Amen? 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 Amen. I really mean it. I'm not just being like enthusiastic. I really mean it. It's so easy to switch off when you're sitting there, particularly on a bit of a nippy day in October. So we are going to stir ourselves and we're going to get the most out of God's word because I believe today God is going to unlock things in our hearts and there's an authority that God wants to put into us as a people, a yet a more, a higher level of authority and confidence. This is God's word to us. This is totally perfect. It is not something to be ashamed of. It is immaculate and it is life to us and it is life to this city. And everyone said... Amen. Again, there we go. Number one then, the purpose. Why was this book written? Okay, and understanding the purpose of any piece of scripture, or in fact anything you ever read. It doesn't have to be Christian. Anything you ever read, you always got to know what the purpose is of it. Because if you don't know what the purpose is, you won't know why it's written in certain ways and not in another way. And you won't know why certain things are included and other things aren't included. Does that make sense? So, for example, I found this piece of writing in the drawer in my my kitchen. And it is the guidance to uh, our DVD player that uh, a kind couple in the church gave us. It says this, care and safety information. Danger. You say danger. 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 With Alan Partridge's voice. Danger. (laughs) High voltage. (laughs) Thank you. Do not open the device. You run the risk of getting an electric shock. Ooh, this machine does not contain any user serviceable parts. Please leave all maintenance works to, to qualified personnel. Set up. Finding a suitable location. Now place this set on a flat, hard, and stable surface. Do not place the set on a carpet. It goes on. And we might say, wait a minute there, Mr. User Manual. It's a little bit rude. You know, what, what you're telling us, why aren't you telling us more detailed information about the diodes and the, the circuit boards of this particular thing? Well, the reason it is, is because actually this is designed to be read by all. It's never designed to be just for weird geeky people who, sorry, no, not good geeky, weird, lovely geeky people. <laughs> Clever people, not, not like me, I'm a thickie. You know, it's not designed for that. The purpose of this is so that anyone can read it and go, okay, okay, this is telling me enough information that I need. Well, you might say, well, wait a minute, it's a bit abrupt. It says, danger. It's a bit rude. Why isn't it more English and polite? And actually it's saying, well, listen, it's not about being polite. It's actually about that to save your life in case you think you're, you know, you're MacGyver or something and you're going to open it up and have a little fiddle around. Don't do it, it's saying. It's there to save lives. The purpose of it is to be read by all and understood by all and to save lives. There's an urgency to it. Now, I know it's a bit of a silly example, but actually it's the best I can do. The reality is, is that when we read Genesis, we've got to realize that God didn't... He, we come to it saying, well, this is what we want to get out of it, and this is what we want to make it do. Actually, God's saying, that's not my purpose in it. And we'll see why. My, my purpose, God's is never to give you a scientific kind of um, defense of my existence. I don't need to, because I'm God. I'm actually here, and when we look at Genesis, as we're going to find the purpose of it, once we get it under our skin, unlocks so much. So what is the purpose, you say? I hear you cry in your hearts. Tom, tell us, what is the main purpose of this mighty book? Can we have the next slide up, please? Okay, stop there, that's great. Victor Hamilton, who's an excellent New Testament scholar, makes the brilliant point, and this is the most exciting part, I think. Well, no, it's not the most exciting part, but here we go. It's great. If you want to summarize Genesis, okay, and get a grasp on what it's about, there are three main processes that happen throughout the, the 50 chapters. Number one, can we have the next slide? And the next bit. Great. Can you see on the left there it says generation. This is chapters one to two. Generation, chapters one and two. The generating, the creating 
of everything out of nothing. That's what they're primarily about, okay? You say generation. generation. They're generating things. But then the second process, chapters 3 to 12, is the degeneration. Can you say degeneration? degeneration? That's right, the falling apart, the crumbling of that which has been generated in the first two chapters. You with me? Yeah? Then chapters 12 onwards, which we're not looking at quite yet, are the regenerating. Can you say regenerating? And that's about the redeeming, the, redeeming the, 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 the rescue plan of that which seems to be completely degenerated. Does that make sense? So generating, God creating out of nothing. Then secondly, the th- chapters 3 to 11 is all about the degenerating from chapter 3 and the fall and things falling apart. But then wonderfully in chapters 12 to 50, the bulk of the book... It's about the regenerating, the rescue, the redemption plan that starts at Abraham and comes right through to Jesus and through to us here today. Now, I'm no theologian. I'll just be honest about that. But there's something you notice, isn't there, on our highly scientific table up there. What is it? What is something to say, what is the book generally about? Is it about dinosaurs? Did dinosaurs? No, it's not really primarily about that, is it? Uh, is, it, is it primarily about monkeys and whether we're from monkeys? No, you're looking very serious. It's, it's not, is it? Let's have a look. What is, I, I think I can detect a slight difference in the sizes of the, of the compartment. I think the main thing that Genesis is actually overall about, the purpose, is about regeneration. Yes, it is about the generating of all things. Yes, it is. But it's almost like God said, I can imagine him you know, having a discussion amongst the, the Godhead before the foundation of the earth began, saying, we could try and explain to these guys, as good as they are, you know, how we created everything. We give a few more chapters to the generating of everything. But let's be honest, no matter how simple language you used, do you think we'd understand it? Do, you do. Do you, think it, do you think any of us would ever comprehend it, how an atom was made? Or the supernova, or Jupiter? Do, do we? We don't, do we? The answer is no. No. It's a bit worrying, guys. You may humbly say, no, of course not, Tom. It would be like Albert Einstein trying to explain the theory of relativity to Daisy, my daughter, or something. It would just be bizarre and pointless, to be honest with you. Well, it, 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 God could have given far more chapters in the second part, in the degenerating, about how distraught he was that we sinned. And that actually he could have spent endless hundreds of chapters bashing us over the head, saying, I'm so distraught that you, you sinned and, you, and everything's degenerating and falling apart of it. But he didn't. What we find overwhelmingly, guys, and this is so important, is that the bulk of this book, and in fact the bulk of the Bible, is about the third thing, which is about the regenerating of that which was lost. And that is so significant. Because you see, as we go through these first 11 chapters, if we're thinking these are kind of about generating and then quite a lot about actually de- the stuff degenerating, we could think that's a bit depressing. That's kind of about you know, the sin bit and everything sort of falling apart. Well, it is. But I want to say, when you read these 11 chapters with the end in mind, when you read these chapters but with one eye, as it were, on the overall purpose, what it declares to us is this. When we see everything falling apart and degenerating, it booms out, we need Jesus. When you read it and you realise that actually this is all pointing to only one person. There's only one person, past, present or future, who could ever step into history and reverse the irreversible. 
So as we read this, I, I want us to realize these are not a collection of random stories of things going wrong. When we look at the Tower of Babel or Noah and the flood or Cain and Abel or whatever. It's not just these random things. There's an overarching story that our perfect father has always had in mind. I want to say the Genesis, the overall point of Genesis is not about whether we're from monkeys or whether dinosaurs existed or whatever. The overall point of Genesis is actually about something far greater about a God who came to the rescue for his people. And the overall uh, point of Genesis 1 to 11 is actually to set the scene for the rest of Genesis. It's there, as it were, to actually show us the problem of sin. And so we come, therefore, knowing that actually the next few months, as we look at Genesis 1 to 11, guys, as it describes how sin first entered this world and the effects of it, I honestly believe in the nation in which we live, as I said a few weeks ago, If ever there was a problem, if ever there was something that would hold this nation back from entering into the kingdom of God, it's the fact that most people in this this nation think of themselves as basically pretty good. Most people don't really even think of this thing called sin. It's a completely alien thing. The idea that we are bad and that we are in some ways offending a holy God. What are you talking about? We're Britain. You know, we almost won the World Cup. We're pretty good. And we've got a pretty good, uh, you know, track record with immigration. And, you know, we're, uh, we, you know we're, we're pretty nice guys, really. That is actually, isn't it, what most British people think. We're British. We're, you know, fairly nice. And that is a killer. That's a killer attitude. Because it therefore says to us, there's no need for a saviour. And Genesis 1 to 11 is going to punch us in the face and say, listen, you need to realise sin is a big deal. The degeneration that has occurred because of it is massive. But at the same time, gloriously, that all the time we know there is a wonderful saviour who is, as it were, hiding in the wings, waiting to make his appearance later in scripture. And there are three particular ways that we see this generation and then this degenerating take effect. Three different ways. Number one, and they're like themes that we're to look out for. Number one, land. Number two, life. And number three, Love. They're almost like, if you imagine sin is like a virus. These three things are, are the hosts, as it were, in which, or the scientists are looking up, the, the hosts in, in which the virus it t- itself takes habitation. I think that's the phrase. So number one then, we see this process of generation and then degenerating with land. I want us to look out for it in the coming weeks. Again and again, you'll see this is a thing. We're going to see the generation of land generally in chapter one. Where it says, God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then we see quickly the generating of land generously, as it were, specifically in the Garden of Eden. And we see that in Genesis uh, chapter 2. It says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So we see the generating of good land. But then we see in chapter 3, we're going to see actually because of Adam and Eve's sin, it starts to generate, degenerate and fall apart. We're going to see that the land becomes cursed. That actually because Cain kills Abel, he's thrown out from the land. We're going to see the land degenerating in the form of the entire earth being flooded in chapter 6 when Noah uh, is the, one of the only people who's saved. And so we're going to see again and again that in the, in the realm of land, this, this theme of of generating and then degenerating. So we're going to see that. Look out for it as we go through through the scriptures in the next few months. But secondly, we're also going to see the theme of life. Again, expressing 
this process of generating and degenerating. We see, obviously, the generating of life in its fullness right at the beginning. It says in chapter 121, uh, on day five, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. And then on day six, we see the creating specifically of human life. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Good, positive. Here we are, great generating of positive life. But then again, we see, we're going to see in chapter 3, with the sin that that occurred with Adam and Eve, something new is entered called death, the opposite of life. We're going to see death coming in, and we see in chapter 3, verse 19, God says, now, to dust you shall return. Now, we don't know whether... Adam and Eve, originally, were going to live forever, but it's certainly possible. We just don't know. But what we see here is this, is this introduction of some de- degenerating thing called death. Again, we're going to see in chapter 4, where Cain kills his brother. Death, as the opposite of life, is a key theme. And obviously, again, in chapter 6 and 7, with the flooding of the earth, death is a massive, massive theme. And then thirdly, the third expression of this process of generation and then degenerating is in love. And what we see right at the beginning is that God generates a perfect vertical and horizontal love relationship. A vertical one between him and Adam and Eve. It's incredible. He says, right at the beginning in verse 26 of chapter 1, God says, let's make man in our own image, after our likeness. And what we're going to read about is this phenomenal, original, perfect relationship. This love relationship between a father and and two human beings. And then we're going to see how this almost overflows in the horizontal realm between originally with Adam and Eve. And that there is this exquisite, perfect love relationship that's generated right at the beginning between the two. It's, it's almost quite funny, I think. I think we're allowed to laugh at times. Because we see, it, we're going to see Ad, uh, Adam walking around nude. I love that. He's walking around nude. And uh, it says, it says uh, in, this, in, in chapter 2, 21, it says, The Lord caused a deep sleep to follow upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, ah, this is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And we see this, we, Dr. Evil, we see this incredible, incredible original romance. It's amazing. You just imagine, you know, imagine Adam, there he is, hanging out with God, nude. You know, but there's no shame. <laughs> There's no shame because it's all perfect. Hey, God, how you doing? Pretty good. And he gets a bit sleepy. Oh, gosh, a bit of a... Has a little lie down. Oh, blimey. Oh, it's been a been tough work in the garden today. Has a little sleep and he wakes up and stone the crows. Blimey. It feels like someone's beating him up. Oh, dear. Where's my rib? Yeah, my rib's all... Suddenly, across the room, there is something new in the garden. Hi, Karamba. There she is. Nude. But there's no shame. How are you doing? You uh, new to these parts? Okay, let's go for a walk. We see this exquisite. It's wonderful. So wonderful. This original relationship images. Sorry, go in the name of Jesus. It's a Sunday morning. Can't talk about being nude. Yes, we can. We're not religious. Uh, absolutely. And we just see this wonderful horizontal relationship between two people. And suddenly, though, tragically again, in chapter 3, we're going to see this break down in the fall. We see Adam and Eve both choose to sin. 
And we see tragically, this such sad words we're going to read about in verse 8 of chapter 3. The, the vertical relationship with God breaks down. They says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the, and the wife hid themselves from God. And that breakdown in that perfect, perfectly ge- de- uh, generated relationship with God then expresses itself in a breakdown of relationship between them. They first of all, in terms of shame, they realize that they're naked. They didn't before, but now they do. Then actually, in, in, in chapter 3, verse 15, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. And this goes more and more and more until we've seen, obviously, even this overflowing. Cain ends up killing his brother. And in terms of, of the entire known earth at that point, it says in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. It's an extraordinary story we're going to read in the next few, next few weeks, guys, of how we go from one incredible moment of perfection, between us and God, between Adam and Eve and God, and between themselves. And one awful moment of decision breaks down. And the whole degenerating of that love relationship between them and God and each other is the result. But as we do this, as we look in the next few weeks, I want us to keep remembering what I started this sermon by saying, is this is not the end of the story. And all of this, all these different expressions of degeneration in land, in life, or in love, all of these point to someone who can break in and bring glorious salvation. And we who have the Bible now know how the story ends, don't we? We know that wonderfully on that great day when Jesus returns. It says this in Isaiah 65. It says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new... The land will be regenerated and restored. And we go on in 1 John 2.17, it says, For those who do the will of God live forever. The effects of the death that came in will be completely regenerated in Jesus. And we also see, gloriously, not just in land and in terms of life, but in terms of love and the relationship that was damaged so badly at the fall. And we see here, also in Revelation 21, where it talks about the world to come, it, sees, it, it paints a picture of a totally restored relationship between us and God. It says this, this is God's words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this, he, that's God, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can I have an, an amen? A hallelujah, something. Thank you. Amen? amen. Hallelujah? Praise God. Is it good news? Wonderful. Hallelujah. God promises he will wipe away every tear. Man, this is real. This is real. This isn't fiction. This is reality. And it's so important, guys, as we go through Genesis 1 to 11, and we look primarily at this falling apart of things, we go, yes, but we know how it's going to end. And this is why, without any manipulation or any sense of being naive, truly, we see Jesus. We see Jesus on every page of the Bible. It's not manipulative to say that actually Jesus, Jesus declares himself, as it were, through every single verse of the Bible. Jesus is always there, always needed, even right from the beginning. So I'm thrilled. And what this means for us is when we read this book, and particularly these first 11 chapters, I want us to be absolutely crystal clear in our minds what is the primary purpose of why Moses and God originally wrote this book. 
Why did they write it? And the reason they wrote it was not primarily to defend himself. God doesn't need to defend himself. Actually, he's pretty big. He doesn't need to do that. It's here to communicate a wonderful story. The most important true story that we will ever hear. It's here to answer questions like, why are we here? How come this world is both incredibly beautiful and yet also so painful? And why am I here on this earth? This is why Genesis is primarily written, is to answer these questions. And so we come then to the final question, and with this we finish. is not just the purpose of why this book was written, but also the person who wrote it. And this is so important, because the two dovetail together. I told a story, I think, when I started the book of James, and I held up a real letter that my good friend Gustav Strandvik, a fellow elder here, had written to me many years ago. It was, I think, about 5,000 words long or something insane. And it was was basically a letter of of rebuke. I can't even say it. It still scares me. Rebuke about something I'd done, and it was spot on, and I thank him for being so honest. But this is the key point. Because I knew it was Gustav, and because I knew Gustav had been open about in his life when he got things wrong, and yet also was a man of God, I could take it. Because I knew the author, I thought, yeah, this is worth listening to. If it wasn't him, I might not have been so receptive. Because I knew the person who wrote it, I thought, yeah, this will do me good. It's going to be painful, but I need to, I need to get this into me because it's from a man who loves me and he wants the best for me. And so in the same way, with any book, and particularly with Genesis, we need to understand the person who wrote it. And there's two real answers to this, just to confuse you. There's two answers, actually, to who wrote this book. Number one, at a human level, Moses. And number two, though, at an ultimate level, God. You see, Moses for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, has been accepted by Jewish theologians, by Christian theologians, and by secular historians as the clear author of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, of which obviously Genesis is the first. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the first five books, and they are very important to the Jewish people. They're almost known as like the maker's instructions, okay? Now, this is the big point, is that in the last couple of hundred years, and it's worth knowing this, is that actually really great, clever scholars, you can see my uh, slight unbelief there, have actually suggested that perhaps Moses didn't actually write it, even though for hundreds of years people have been completely satisfied that clearly he was the guy who wrote it. And they give two reasons. They say number one is that actually we know that Moses died. It talks about Moses dying at the end of Deuteronomy. So how, therefore, could Moses write about his own death? Any ideas here? How can we overcome this rather easy obstacle? The reality is, just because it records his death right at the end, it's so obvious that easily someone could have written that last part in and just put it in. Joshua, for example, just recording the end of his life. It's a a ridiculous thing to therefore discredit the entire rest of the five books. The other interesting point that they make is, is that if, as we understand, stay with me here, The last events of Genesis, the first book, finished 300 years before Moses was born. How could he therefore have written it down? Well, again, there's a very easy answer to this. The reality is is there's something called the oral tradition. Now, I studied this as a non-Christian studying anthropology uh, at Kent University about tribes in in, in the 21st century, okay? very, very well-known thing called the oral tradition. And basically, it's a posh couple of words, which basically say, when you are in a pre-literate society, a a society that doesn't do a lot of writing stuff down, you develop a superb memory. 
and an ability to actually document very accurately through oral tradition, through speaking it to your, your, your offspring, two main things, both where your lineage came from, who your mum and dad were and family trees, but also the great events, the great stories that have happened in your family's past. And so if you go to tribes in Papua New Guinea or different parts of the world nowadays, the oral tradition is incredibly accurate, very, very common, very common throughout the world. And it's very clear that this is exactly what would have happened here. Although Moses wouldn't have been alive when Genesis actually occurred, he would have been actually very familiar with the oral tradition that would have been passed down to him, and therefore he wrote it down, and we can be completely confident of his accuracy. Obviously, there is a little bit of a unique chapter in the Bible, and it's chapter 1. Because as we know, this is, and Andy will look at this next week in more detail, this tells us about the actual creation of the world. And the, 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 the criticism has been, well, how on earth could Moses have known what happened in day one, and then day two, and day three? And this, as Hebrews 11, chapter 3, tells us, is where we have to exercise faith. Hebrews 11.3 says this. He says, By faith we believe that the universe was created. And that is not a cop-out, but it is actually a deliberate choice that we make in our hearts to believe that just like other parts of the Bible, Abraham received by direct revelation from God what happened at the beginning. So, for example, the Apostle John, he wrote the book Revelation, didn't he? But he hadn't literally been to heaven. He didn't die and then come back is that by direct revelation on the island of Patmos, God gave him a vision of what heaven was actually like. And we know and trust that book. And it's Isaiah, who glimpsed heaven as well, by direct revelation. So we have to understand that it's actually not totally unique. It's just unusual parts of the Bible, which, aren't, uh, which didn't come about through a person physically experiencing it, as most of the Bible is, but actually had those moments of direct revelation. Does that make sense? It's important. I know it sounds a bit like the technical, but these kind of things you will come up against if you haven't already. And this is actually where we have to be equipped. So, personally, I'm incredibly comfortable with the fact that Jesus wrote, sorry, that Moses wrote the Pentateuch and wrote Genesis. And Jesus, again and again, we see, uh, refers throughout the, the Gospels about Moses and the law, which is reference to part of the Pentateuch. So, Jesus, in his mind, was clearly confident and he was God, so I trust Jesus, that actually Moses wrote the Pentateuch and therefore Genesis as well. Okay, there's the technical stuff, but you know, I, wanna, I want us to be equipped as a church and not just be all sort of frothy, if you know what I mean. So we know that Moses therefore wrote this book. And what do we know about Moses? Well, no, Moses was both an ordinary guy, but also an extraordinary guy. He was an ordinary guy in the fact that he was very shy. He wouldn't even want to talk publicly. He had a guy called Aaron with him who would do his kind of public speaking for him. He was also a man who, to be honest with you, Got it wrong at times. I mean, I mean, we read in Exodus, he actually kills someone uh, because of some incident with a slave. It's extraordinary. He was very ordinary, very sinful, very normal guy. And yet Moses was a man who was used by God in extraordinary ways. He leads the people of Israel out of their captivity. We see him, by God's grace, seeing the incident of the Red Sea being parted and then closed and numerous miracles that happened. And so what this means for us is as we read this, is that we can trust this guy. He was a normal guy, but he knew the anointing and the power of God. So, Genesis was written by Moses, I think. I think good stuff you think as well, don't you? We both agree, yes. So your eldership thinks. But more importantly, and I've left the best till last, there was one other person who was somewhat important, 
in terms of writing this book? What was his name? God. Yes. God, ultimately, as with all of Scripture, but most certainly with Genesis, is the ultimate author of this book. And why do I say this? And this is so important. Because when we read Genesis, is what we have to realise is that it is fundamentally, fundamentally, more about the creator than about the creation. It is without doubt fundamentally more there to tell us about the creator rather than the creation. It tells us about the creation. Of course it does. And that's a good thing. But more than that, Genesis is here to tell us about the creator. David Pawson says, it is not primarily about how our world came to be, but about who made it come to be. So, for example, it's in Genesis chapter 1. In the very first chapter, in 31 verses, the word God comes up 35 times. It's like God this, God that, God this, God there. God is wanting us to realise as we read this, although it's at one level about the, the world around us, it is so much more about the creator who made it. Gloriously, Genesis 1 is a picture of the creator. And so we learn some incredible things about our wonderful God. We, we learn, for example, we're going to learn that he is personal. We have a God with a heart who feels things. We have a God with a mind that thinks things. We have a God with a will that exerts things. He is not an it. He is a he. He is a God who has motives and emotions and feelings. We're going to discover in the coming weeks that our God, the God who created everything, is personal. And yet he is also, secondly, powerful. We are going to see a picture of a God who will blow our tiny minds in terms of his power. I love it. We're going to read about a God who simply spoke and everything that has ever existed, is existing, or will ever exist, came into being. I mean, I have realized the contrast between me and God in the last few months. I've got a one-year-old daughter, and I'm trying to teach her discipline her with my voice and my command not to do certain things. But if little Daisy, if the gates open and the stairs are there, boop, 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 over she goes, and I can be sitting on my... T- Daisy, go! No, 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 Daisy, come back now. Come back here, come. Daisy, come come here, not right now. Here, go, heel. Come on, boy. Come on, girl. Come here. Doesn't make a jot of difference. She is just off. Those stairs are in her object of her affection. She is away. And I can be shouting my head off, and she ignores me. The reality is my spoken word is not very powerful. But the God that we're going to be looking at just speaks. He just speaks. And everything was created. It's mind-blowing. A God who is both personal and profoundly powerful. We're also going to learn about a God who is uncreated. At the beginning of Genesis, it just says, in the beginning, God It doesn't try to explain his being. It doesn't try to defend himself. It just says, God. It just, God's always existed. It says in Job 38, it's a very wonderful passage of scripture. God says this, I think with sarcasm to Job. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Obviously, God here is being a little sarcastic because Job wasn't around then, as none of us were. And what we're going to learn is here is that God, I love it. He just, in the beginning, God. He doesn't try and explain it or defend himself. God is uncreated. We're going to learn that, but we're also going to realize that God, nevertheless, is profoundly creative. He's uncreated, but he is profoundly creative. We're going to find the fact this God 
who made no two snowflakes the same. No two blades of grass are the same. No two clouds are the same. No two grains of sand are the same. This is the God of staggering creativity. We're going to see a God here who is singular and yet plural. We're going to see a God here who is like us and yet totally unlike us. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Friends, as we go through these chapters, can I implore us to again and again turn our attentions to the one that it's pointing at? And so with this, we finish. Is that as a result of this, as a result of the picture that God gives us of this mighty creator, what it does is it stamps on the head of just about every man-made philosophy this world has ever tried to generate. Atheism says, there is no God. Genesis 1 to 11 says, oh yes, there is. Agnosticism says, we can't know either way. Genesis 1 to 11 says, yes, you can. It's pretty obvious. It's here in scripture and it's all around you. Animism says, God is in everything. He's in the mountains and the river. This scripture says to us, God is no more in everything than Henry Ford was in a car that he designed. Yes, it reflects something of his creativity, But God is separate. He's not in the things around us. Existentialism says our experience is to believe to be our God and therefore we are unaccountable to anyone. Genesis 1 to 11 says we are profoundly accountable, every single one of us, for the lives that we live. And our experience is not God in the slightest. Humanism says that man, mankind, is God. Genesis 1 to to 50 tells us that actually everything was created by God. Materialism says only that which we can feel and touch and smell is real. Genesis 1 to 11 says, you must be joking. There's there's an unseen reality that is infinitely more real than the physical one around you. It goes on and on and on. Rationalism, mysticism and pantheism. All the isms you can think of. We're about to read in one book. This glorious book declares absolutely not a single one of them stands up. All of them bow to the simple truth that we're about to read. So I hope you're excited. So what I'm trying to say is it's quite an important book. If you've got that sense here. A little bit of passion here. Guys, we're about to read an incredible book. An amazing book. And actually, in just a minute, we're going to finish with Breaking Bread. I wonder, George, are you here? You're on keyboards today, George. Could you just come and play a little bit? Because I know we've had quite a lot of information. So forgive me for that. But I feel it's important that we do get equipped with our minds as well as with our hearts. And so we're just going to, if the, if the cell on duty could, um, could come and just like to break some bread. You see, what we're going to do now, we're going to break bread. And you think, that's a bit of a, a weird thing to do, isn't it, Tom? Well, it isn't, is it? Because actually what I've been saying is this. Is that right at the beginning of the Bible, who is the Bible, even Genesis 1 to 11, all about? It's about Jesus. And Jesus says, I want you to break bread a lot. I want you to drink wine, or juice in this case, a lot. Because actually, it brings you together and it fixes your heart and mind on me. So we're going to finish today by doing this in an attitude of worship, in anticipation of the Jesus that I believe is going to come declaring and being boomed out of Scripture again and again. So let's just pray, shall we? Lord, we love you. We say you are mighty to save. Lord, as we come in the last five minutes or so today, we just want to say, God, you are... You are the first and you are the last. Lord God, you're the Alpha and the Omega. You're the beginning and the end. You are the one who just spoke and everything that we know has come into existence. 
And I want to write, pray now, Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would come right into this place. Lord, would you come and let the oil of your anointing flow as we break bread, as we drink wine, Lord, today, as we, as we share, Lord God, as we share in remembering you, Jesus, yes, at Calvary, and yes, now, ascended in glory. You who conquered death, you who spoke victory into our lives. God, you who, yes, allows so much stuff to happen, but Lord, you give us your word that we might be those who know how it all ends. Lord, we come today as your family and we say, Holy Spirit, Jesus, you, Jesus, you are the center of who we are. Jesus, you, you are the truth and the way and the life. Jesus, you are everything to us. And as we break bread now, Lord, we just say, Holy Spirit, will you come upon us? Will you come upon us, Lord God? Lord God, maybe if you guys could just help the cell, that would be great. Thanks so much. Jesus.